Welcome to the Bedford Alliance Church Bible Reading Plan Podcast. I'm Luke Cugino, your discipleship pastor and host. This podcast follows along with our church-wide reading plan, which walks you through the entire New Testament and gives you an overview of the Old Testament. Join us as we dive into God's life-changing Word together. Well, hello and welcome back to the podcast. Last week we finished up the Gospel of Mark. And so this week we are going to move into the book of Hebrews. And this is a book that can be challenging to understand at times. This is a book that can kind of sneak up on you in a sense because most of the New Testament letters are fairly reasonable to understand. Now, there there are no doubt things in Paul's letters that are hard to understand. But for the most part, when you're going through the New Testament letters, we feel like we can get a, a pretty good grasp on, on what's going on. But then you come to the book of Hebrews, and, and Hebrews can really trip some people up. So I want to try to give you some background and some context to help you understand better what's going on as you're reading through this. Now, one interesting thing about the book of Hebrews is that it's the only New Testament book where the author is unknown. We do not know for sure who the author of Hebrews is. Now, if you read from the King James Version, the KJV, it attributes Hebrews to Paul. But most scholars actually think that Paul was not the author. Now, why is that? Well, there's one key passage, which is Hebrews 2, chapter 2, verse 3, which says, How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. So the author writes, it was attested to us by those who heard. In other words, the author is distinguishing himself from those who are eyewitnesses of Jesus. And we know that Jesus appeared to Paul. And that was an important part of of Paul's testimony. He often stressed that. He emphasized that he didn't receive the gospel from man, but directly from Jesus. So since the author says he wasn't an eyewitness of Jesus... That likely means that Paul wasn't the author of Hebrews. Now, also keep in mind that Paul always identified himself in his letters, and the author of Hebrews doesn't. There's really no introduction at the start of this letter. So that is also evidence that Paul is not the author. So what do we know about the author of Hebrews? Well, it seems that the author was male because he does refer to himself using masculine participles in Greek. And we we know that the author also knew Timothy because of chapter 13, verse 23. So who was the author of Hebrews? Well, some people have suggested Luke, who also wrote the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. Some people have said Apollos or Barnabas. But ultimately, we have to conclude the same thing that Origen did way back in 254 AD when he wrote, Who actually wrote this epistle? Only God knows. Ultimately, this isn't really an important issue. We know that this is part of God's inspired word. These are the very words of God, and that's what matters most. Now, as far as the date of this letter, Hebrews was likely written before 70 AD because that's when the temple was destroyed in Jerusalem. And in this book, you're going to see a lot of references to the temple and to sacrifices, including in chapter 10, where it talks about the sacrifices that are continually offered every year. 
It doesn't really make sense to say that, to talk about sacrifices that are being continually offered if the temple has already been destroyed. So the book of Hebrews must have been written before 70 AD. Now, who was this letter written to? And this is really key to understanding Hebrews. Understand that this was written to believers in Christ with a Jewish background. So hence the title, Hebrews. This letter is addressing the Hebrew people, the Jewish people. And they were likely living near the city of Rome during the time of Emperor Nero's reign. Now, if you know your history, if you know the history of the Roman Empire, Rome had a major fire in 64 AD. And Emperor Nero blamed it on Christians. And after that, he unleashed a ruthless persecution on them, on believers in Christ. He was known for doing things like burning Christians alive to light his gardens at night. So that's the kind of persecution that we're talking about here. Christians were being brutally killed and crucified and beaten and burned alive. And in the midst of this, Jewish believers in Christ are being tempted to return to their old ways, to go back to their Jewish practices in order to avoid more persecution. Now, I think it's easy for us to say, I would never do that. I would never renounce Christ. But understand that these people grew up Jewish. They grew up going to the synagogues. It's what they knew. It's what they were comfortable with. It's what their ancestors did. And it was legal. Judaism was exempt from persecution by the Roman government, and it provided a safe alternative to Christianity. So you can imagine families thinking, Let's just go back to the way things were. It wasn't so bad back then. At least our lives weren't in danger constantly. And you can see where maybe they would start to doubt if following Christ is worth it. But the author of Hebrews comes along, whoever he is, and he says, no, don't abandon Christ. So the the main theme of Hebrews is that Jesus is greater. You're going to see a ton of Old Testament references in this book because he's writing to a Jewish audience. They were steeped in the Old Testament. That was their scripture. And so the author says, Jesus is greater. He's greater than the angels. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than the Old Testament law and sacrifices. He's greater than the Old Testament priests. Jesus is the fulfillment of all those things. So don't abandon him. He's the one that the Old Testament anticipated and longed for. And whereas the Old Testament sacrifices had to be offered repeatedly for Israel to maintain its relationship with God, Jesus offered his perfect sacrifice once for all. And whereas the Old Testament priests were imperfect and they were temporary, Jesus is our perfect high priest forever. There is one perfect mediator between God and man, and that is Jesus Christ. Jesus is greater. Don't abandon the very one the Old Testament points to. That's the main theme of the book of Hebrews. And remember that there's so much discussion about the temple and the law and sacrifices because the audience is Jewish. Even though these might not be thoughts that we struggle with, These were the thoughts that they were struggling with coming from a Jewish background. And the whole point is that Jesus is greater. Jesus is the fulfillment of all these things. He is God himself. 
He is the one for whom and by whom all things exist, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And so the author of Hebrews encourages these believers who are being tempted to to go back to their old ways. He encourages them to press on. He calls them to endurance. So that's just a, a quick intro to the book, but I want to talk a little bit more about a difficult and controversial passage, and it's in Hebrews 6, starting in verse 4. It says, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. So the question here is, is this passage talking about people who were formerly Christians who then lost their salvation? This is a passage that can sometimes make people question whether salvation can be lost. But to understand this verse, as always, we have to look at the context. Context is always key. So let's look at the verse just after this passage. The the verse is just after the starting in verse 7. It says, For land that had drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. So we have an agricultural metaphor here. And those who receive final judgment are being compared to land that bears no fruit and instead bears thorns and thistles. Now we know that elsewhere in scripture, bearing fruit is a sign of being a true believer in Christ. But on the flip side, fruitlessness Not bearing any fruit is a sign of not being a true believer in Christ. So notice it doesn't talk about land that once bore fruit, but now doesn't. It's talking about land that never bore good fruit. In other words, the author is talking about people who aren't genuinely Christian, who aren't genuinely believers in Christ. Now, more evidence for this view is found in verse 9. If we move on one verse, it says, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. So the author switches back to addressing his audience, who we know are believers in Christ, true believers in Christ. And he says, in your case, we're sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. So he's drawing a distinction between the people he was addressing in verses 4 through 8 and the true believers in verse 9. He says, for those of you who are believers... The author is sure of better things. So what are these better things? These are things that give real evidence of salvation because the author goes on and talks about how the believers have genuine fruit and genuine faith. So for those who are true believers, the author seems sure of their salvation. He says, unlike the people I was just talking about, you really are saved and you can be sure of it. So what do we make then of verses 4 through 6 that I read earlier? Because it talks about people who tasted the heavenly gift and and tasted the goodness of the word of God. Well, this word tasted can imply something temporary, and it doesn't necessarily mean that the person accepts the thing that's being tasted. So, for example, this same word is used in Matthew 27 when Jesus hangs on the cross. If you remember the people crucifying Jesus, they offer him wine to drink. And it says that he tastes it, 
but it also says that he would not drink it. So tasting doesn't necessarily mean that somebody had genuine faith. It doesn't necessarily mean that somebody actually accepted the message of Christ, but they may have had some understanding of it and may have experienced some of its power, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they actually accepted it. This passage here in verses 4 through 6 also talks about those who shared in the Holy Spirit. Now, this word shared can mean close participation and attachment, but it can also be talking about a looser association. So, for example, in Ephesians 5, 7, it uses a variation of this same word to warn Christians to not be partners or to not be associated with those who take part in evil. So Hebrews 6 is really referring to those who have been associated with the Holy Spirit. And it doesn't necessarily mean that they experienced a redeeming work of the Spirit in their lives. Now, I also want to address this phrase where it says that it is impossible to restore again to repentance, talking about these people here in verses 4 through 6. Some people might say that if this is speaking of restoring people to repentance, doesn't that mean that they must have had repentance at one point? But understand that not all repentance is genuine repentance leading to salvation. Because this same word for repentance here is also used to describe Esau in Hebrews 12, 17. It says he was sorrowful, but he was so hardened that he was unable to come to true repentance. So it's possible for people to have sorrow but not reach true repentance that leads to salvation. And it appears that that's what this passage is talking about. So who is this passage in Hebrews 6 addressing? Well, it's likely talking about those people who are closely associated with the fellowship of the church. They may have some measure of sorrow for their sins They may have some understanding of the gospel. They're enlightened in some way. They've been exposed to the true preaching of the word. They've witnessed the work of the spirit. They've tasted some of the goodness of God, and yet they fall away. Which doesn't mean that they lost salvation, but that they were exposed to the message of salvation, and they've rejected it. They've willfully turned away. They've walked away from Christ and his church. And so they will face final judgment. This is talking about people who have participated in in the fellowship of the church and and experienced some of God's blessings, but never truly turned from sin and trusted in Jesus. They've never surrendered their lives to Christ and never shown fruit or produced fruit in keeping with repentance. So all of that to say that those who are saved, those who have genuine faith, can rest assured of their salvation. That's the consistent message when you look at the whole of Scripture. You have John 10 where Jesus talks about his sheep and how no one can snatch them out of his hand. And Romans 8.30 says that those who God justifies, he will also one day glorify. Philippians 1 says that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Hebrews 7.25 says that Jesus is able to save completely those who come to God through him. So rest assured, Christian, in your salvation. Find hope. But as we wrap up, I want to challenge you, as I often have in this podcast, who is one person in your life who isn't sure of their salvation? 
Who's one person, maybe even somebody who goes to church and and participates in church events and even Bible studies, who doesn't truly understand what it means to be saved? How can you help this person? We're talking about matters of eternity here. We only get a few short years on this earth before our eternity is set. But sometimes we, we think about that and we get so overwhelmed and we don't even know where to start with helping save the lost. And that's why I encourage you to focus on just one person. Imagine if every one of us at BAC, at Bedford Alliance, led one person to the Lord in the next year, think about the impact that would have on our church and on the community. And then if every one of those people eventually led someone to the Lord, imagine the impact that would have. The kingdom of God starts small like a mustard seed, but it blossoms into something greater than anyone can imagine. Let's be part of the kingdom advancing. Someone brought the gospel to you. Don't let it stop with you. Let's be part of living for eternity, living for what matters. There's no greater cause that you can give your life for. If you spend your life living for God and for eternity, you will never regret it.